Well, we have kept the Feast of Trumpets, and now we are anticipating the Day of Atonement. And it's so refreshing to be observing these days that are representing Christ's intervention on earth, which we so desperately need. We're hearing about what these days represent. But I wanted to talk about perhaps today an issue which is, or a subject which is related, uh, sort of take an offshoot of one of the themes that we are talking about during these days of the fall holy days. Uh, something that's going to happen at Christ's return, but has roots that go back a couple of thousand years. So to start off, let's turn to Revelation 17. And we read something in uh, the book of Revelation from, from John about a conversation that he had with one of the angels that was uh, opening the, uh, blowing the trumpets, opening the seals, etc. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. Then one of these seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, uh, first of all, let's take a step back for a moment and get a bigger perspective about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of symbols, uh, for example, uh, stars sometimes represent angels. Floods sometimes represent people or armies. Uh, horns represent governments or political powers. And a woman, in this context, represents and symbolizes a church. A woman symbolizes a church. Revelation 17 is describing a woman and as we're going to find out, that woman is a church. Now let's go over to Revelation 19, and we'll, we'll hop back and forth here for a moment, just to get, again, a little context of, of what we're talking about here, that a woman represents a church. John was also inspired to see in vision the glorified saints entering God's kingdom, the glorified saints marrying Jesus Christ as his bride. And of course, we understand that that's going to happen after Christ returns, after the seventh uh, trumpet is blown. And what a joyous time that will be. Let's read it, Revelation 19.7. How did John describe, how did Christ describe his church, his saints? Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So Christ is going to marry a woman. He's going to marry his wife. His church is symbolized by a woman. Verse 8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So Jesus inspired John to see his precious church, his people who are faithful to him and zealous and are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. He inspired them, John to see that church 
symbolized as a woman preparing to meet Mary, her husband. So what a contrast. The, the righteous and, 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 and a woman of character and integrity and upstanding woman of Revelation 19 as opposed to the woman of Revelation 17. The bottom line is a woman symbolizes a church. Let's go back to Revelation 17 and we will read on about this church or religious system, we might say, that John prophesied of, who, which in God's eyes would be immoral and corrupt and decadent and abominable. You know, all of the adjectives you could possibly think of, this church is, is, uh, is you know, is that way, is, uh, personifies that. Uh, Revelation 17 and verse Verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman, again, a church, a religious system, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. What a description. Just about as far of a contrast to the woman that we were reading about in Revelation 19 as you could imagine. Here we, we see a woman who's living in luxury, who's rich, who's involved in worldly politics, uh, very blunt, very candid, not a very favorable description of this woman. And the Bible is very open and doesn't mince words about it. So why is it important that we talk about this? Why does it matter? And even in this context of the fall holy days about Christ intervening in world affairs. Is it only an academic exercise? Is it to just figure out what this symbolizes and what that symbolizes? Well, no, it actually is pretty important for us. Revelation 18, Revelation 18 and verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So now we read of this system being demonic and full of demons and full of full of the uncleanness of, of Satan the devil and of his demons. For all, verse 3, the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So it's talking about the same thing we were referring to before. This woman who is a church, who is a religious system, who is not pleasing to God, who is actually going to be judged by God as we're going to see. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. 
Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works and the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. So a judgment coming on this system and an admonition God is giving to his people regarding this church. Verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord who judges her. So, why is this important? Because whoever is alive, whoever is around of God's people, whoever is a part of the the pure and chaste and good woman, a woman of integrity and God's character and faithful and zeal, whoever is a part of that is going to be faced with having to deal with this other woman. And is even given the admonition, don't be a part of her. Come out of her. Don't have anything to do with her. Or else you'll be punished as well. So since we live and we find ourselves living in this generation, it concerns us. It's going to affect us. And the call and the challenge is for us. So let's talk about that today in the time we have. About this system, what's going to happen to it and how we must prepare for the times ahead. And if you want a title, it is, Come Out of Her, My People. Come Out of Her, My People. Now, who would voluntarily be a part of a system like this that is blasphemous, that is adulterous, that is demonic? You know, who in their right mind would ever want to be a part of that? And yet, we understand, and I won't turn to every scripture uh, that we refer to today, but in Matthew 24, verse 24, it says that in the end time, as these things are happening just before Christ's return, even if it's possible, even the elect will be deceived. Because it will be so confusing and the deception will be so strong. So there's a warning for us. And that's why... God, John has given us the warning. Christ has given it through John. That even if the elect, if it's possible, could even be confused by this system. John wasn't the only one who gave this warning as well. Notice in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul uh, talked about a warning for his people. A warning for the church. And guess what? He used the same symbolism of the church being a virtuous woman. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Same symbolism that John used decades later when he wrote the book of Revelation. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul was saying, I fear, I'm concerned, because they're already, he was already beginning to see 
a, a, a movement even within the church among those who were beginning to, to corrupt and change and alter and pervert the truth within the church. And he said, I, I'm worried, I'm concerned that some of you aren't going to be able to recognize this when this blossoms, when this flowers. And I can see the signs already on, on the wall. Same symbolism, same message, same warning. And this is way even before John wrote in Revelation. Paul explained that just because some come in the name of Christ doesn't mean they are true followers or true servants of Christ. He said in verse 13, uh, verse of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So, Paul said, look, it's not surprising. Satan has a counterfeit of Christianity. And he has his servants who are his servants, not God's servants. He has his ministers, who are his ministers, not God's ministers. And so, he said, watch out. Just because people use the name of Christ doesn't mean they are of Christ. So, this Holy Day season, um, in the, the fall, in about trumpets and about atonement and about the Feast of Tabernacles is, is so important for us knowing and understanding what is going to happen within most of our lifetimes? We understand that. The signs are, on, are already there. Uh, we are in the days leading up to these events. And we know that uh, this system that Paul was talking about, that John was talking about, is going to put tremendous pressure on God's people and on anyone who will try to get in its way before the end comes. So we need to be ready. And that's why God has given us this book, why he has given us the book of Revelation with a description of things that are going to happen so we can be warned, so we can be prepared, so we don't have to be frightened. And how thankful we are for that. So let's look at a few identifying markers of this system. This woman, the adulterous uh, woman of Revelation 17. So... So we can make sure that we come out of this system in every possible way. Number one, number one, some identifying markers. Number one, the harlot woman, the great harlot, represents a politically influential religious system. The harlot woman represents a politically influential religious system. Let's go back about 1,500 years to the end of the Roman Empire, around 476 A.D., we understand. Uh, in the 6th century, the Eastern Emperor named Justinian dreamed of reuniting the East and the West. And he did it to some degree. But how did he do that? Well, a British author and speaker, Adrian Hilton, explained in his book, Principality and Power of Europe, that he wrote back in uh, 2000 or so. He said, he, that is Justinian, 
saw himself as God's agent, destroying barbarian heretics, winning back the lost provinces of the West, and healing the divisions inflicted on Rome by barbarian invaders in 476. He acknowledged the supremacy of the Pope in the West, he acknowledged the supremacy of the Pope in the West, and effectively restored both legs of the empire, East and West. This became known as the Imperial Restoration, end quote. So Justinian very cleverly gained the loyalty of the bishops and of the Pope in Rome in order to reconquer Rome. And with that alliance, a new sort of uh, a new sort of configuration was born and political reality was born in Europe. And that was the union of temporal kings and a religious system made up of religious leaders. These, these kings and these religious leaders. And that became the story of Europe for a thousand years and more. Again, uh, remember in Revelation 17, it speaks of a beast that has seven heads those seven heads, and the woman is riding this beast, those seven heads represent seven successive governments. And we can talk about uh, what those governments were, who those kings were. Uh, Justinian, we take as being the first in this, in this restoration of the, the Roman Empire, the so-called Holy Roman Empire. The second was Charlemagne, crowned by the Pope, by the Pope, Think about it, this, this alliance between the religious leader and the uh, king and the, the political leader, uh, Charlemagne. That was in the year 800. Then Otto the Great was crowned in 962 AD. Then Charles V in 1530. And then Napoleon. Napoleon. The Pope was about to crown him in 1804. And as we are told the story, Napoleon grabbed the crown and put it on his own head. He did not want to come under the authority of the Pope in that sense, but he still recognized that the Pope had the crown to hand to him, you know, to one degree or another. So clearly there was this, this alliance. They both needed each other. The Pope and the, the, the religious system needed the uh, kings and the, these leaders, and these leaders needed the religious system as well. So these are the five, and then we can identify the Axis alliance between Italy and Germany in the late 1800s and early 1900s as the sixth head. So what does this mean? There are seven heads, and only six have occurred. It means there's one more coming. The point is, this is an old system. This has been around for now, what is that, over 1,500 years and yet it's going to rear its head one more time, and there are forces behind the scenes pushing for it to do so. We're familiar with Pope John Paul's call back in the 1980s for Europe to rediscover its roots. But back in 2006, Pope Benedict uh, said in an address, he said, It is not surprising that Christianity, despite its origins and some significant development in the East, that's an interesting uh, way to put it. Origins and some significant development in the East. You know, as if, you know, all the things that happened in Asia Minor were really sort of insignificant. What really was important was in Rome. You know, just a strange, strange thing there. 
Uh, but he says it finally took on its historically decisive character in Europe, the church. We can also express this the other way around. This convergence with the subsequent addition of the Roman heritage created Europe. What a statement. And remains the foundation of what can rightly be called Europe. So in the Pope's eyes, Pope Benedict's eyes, you don't have Europe, you don't have the, the, what we see as Europe without the, this religious system underpinning and being the foundation. Even the current Pope, although he has soft-pedaled it, uh, he, has, he has still talked about this Christian, so-called Christian system being an important thing in Europe. Uh, he said back in, um, uh, not long ago, I think it was uh, a year or two ago, yes, Europe has Christian roots, and it is Christianity's responsibility to water these roots. Interesting. But this must be done in a spirit of service, as in the washing of the feet. Christianity's duty to Europe is one of service. It must not become a colonial enterprise. It's interesting how, you know, when this woman is revived and blossoms again, probably at first it will seem like a positive, a peaceful enterprise. But at the end of the day, it's going to bring devastation. And it's going to be a very harsh uh, system for any of those who oppose it. Let's turn over to Revelation uh, 17. Again, we're in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to Revelation 17. And we find here, as we were talking about the seven heads, uh, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse Uh, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Now again, seven kings, successive kings, all the way from Justinian up into the last one which has not appeared. But notice, it says, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now we understand this as referring to five have have Come, five have fallen, being before the 1930s or so. One is, that was the one that Mr. Armstrong, when he became aware of this and we, he understood this, that was the Mussolini-Hitler axis. And one is, and yet one is to come. Now some may say, well that's very convenient for you to, for, for the church to say, Ah, this scripture had to be understood only from the perspective of the early 1900s. Well, let's think about it for a moment. When we understand that a whole third, one third of the Bible is prophecy, and a good portion of that is in time prophecy leading up to the return of Christ, the biggest event that will ever happen in, in history, at least you know, in that sense, I mean, Christ directly intervening in the earth. He came the first time to die and be a servant, but the second time he'll come back to take control of the kings and kingdoms of this earth. Certainly up to that point, that will be the, the most dramatic uh, point in human history. 
And, and so, and also the fact that the tribulation is going to be the worst time of trouble ever that will have ever come upon the earth. Would it not make sense that whoever is living in that generation just before that time, that God would give them and would unfold and unveil an understanding of where they are and even in a unique way so they could be prepared. Why wouldn't he give that generation, our generation, an understanding of what's coming? When we're going to face the worst time of trouble that has ever come on the earth or ever will come on the earth. But we understand that this is talking about um, our time and one is still yet to come. Revelation 17 in verse uh, verse 12 read that the ten horns again that we read about on the beast that the woman is riding the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast so we understand that from this that there will be ten different Leaders in Europe which are going to voluntarily give their allegiance and their power to this beast power who is in league with the woman. And that's why, of course, we watch for this. We watch for a, a hard inner core of ten nations or ten kings or ten leaders in Europe that are really going to drive, uh, drive what's happening here. So the point is, we are in for some interesting times. Europe will rise again as a world superpower and crucial to her ascent will be the growing strength of this religious power that is centuries old. We need to be ready so we're not taken by surprise. So first of all, the, this system, this woman, the harlot woman is a politically active and influential religious system. Number two, number two, the harlot woman is a religious system which is openly against the laws of God. The harlot woman is a system that is openly against the laws of God. You know, in confusing times, and according to Christ, according to Jesus Christ, the times ahead, there are going to be some confusing times because of the the deceitfulness of this system because of the deceitful signs that are going to be done. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, it, it may be very confusing. But in confusing times, it's always important to go back to the beginning. What is true? What is right? Who can I trust? And what does God expect of me? What are some things that we can hang on to when times get rough? You know, I, I remember back in the, the time of when our former association, Worldwide Church of God, was going through and entering uh, an apostasy and entering a time when, when doctrines were, were being overthrown and when things were in, in, in flux and things were very confusing. Uh, I was a college student at that time and I had friends who were going in very different directions and who were very excited about some of the, the new changes in the church at that time. 
And, you know, it, it really felt like the church, which I had grown up in and I had been a part of and I had trusted, was really being dissolved right underneath my feet. And I remember talking to uh, those who I trusted, those who I looked up to and those who I respected. And one of them was my dad and talking to him about this and hearing him in, in talk just in personal conversations as well as to in sermons, etc. about the commands of God. Who teaches the law of God? Who teaches the commandments of God? When it's confusing, when it's difficult, when you have the fog of war, you go back to the beginning. You, you ask, who is teaching the commandments? Of course, there are other, other parts, you know, the, who, who is uh, observing the right government and, and uh, doing the work, etc. But who is observing the laws of God? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So if someone comes along and starts teaching contrary to God's laws and God's commandments, it cuts through the confusion. To, to, to look at who or where are the commandments being taught. Now let's go back into history a little again and see how this system that we're talking about approached God's laws. Author William Manchester describes what the main dominant church of the Middle Ages was like uh, in the book A World Lit Only by Fire. He says... As mass baptism swelled its congregations, the church, the mainstream church, the visible church, the, the, the church which had grown in power in Europe at that time, as mass baptism swelled its congregations, the church further indulged the converts by condoning ancient rites or attempting to transform them in the hope never realized that they would die out. So this author, he, he's, he doesn't have an axe to grind. He's just describing as a reporter what was happening at that time. And he said these ancient rites, uh, they never died out. They, they were transformed. They were put on a, a veneer of respectability. But, but uh, they were just brought in right into the church. What were some of them? He goes on, he says, fertility rituals and augury were sanctioned. In other words, telling the future uh, by various means. And having these rites from ancient times, which were festivals and, and practices that really were just giving excuse for sexual promiscuity with a, a religious veneer. And yet God told his people uh, many times in the Old Testament, he, he warned them against observing the practices of the nations around them, uh, many of which practiced uh, ritual prostitution and practice these fertility observances, which were, again, um, obscene and, frankly, just uh, promiscuous. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, what does God say in his word? He's very clear that not only are we to uh, avoid adultery and fornication, but he, he says even in Matthew 5 and verse 27, avoid the thought in your heart of doing that, of even thinking that, of even uh, lusting after another person. So, you know, as we are thinking about um, how to avoid certain 
traps in the future. Uh, we must not be pulled into practices that are ungodly and immoral and unclean. Uh, and in our day, they're all around us. The temptations are bombarding us and bombarding our, our children. We must be ever vigilant by what we see and what we do, what we think, our entertainment. You know, these things don't really change. What was the draw in those times, in ancient times? Well, the same draw that we have today. I mean, their sexual lust was a powerful draw. So why did Satan include those in the religious system of, of the day? Well, of course, it would be attractive to people. And it would appeal to their, their baser natures if they weren't following, if they weren't responding to God. Things don't change. And that's, that's again, a prime area where Satan ensnares human beings. So we must be wary. It's interesting that this system we're talking about today is being rocked by scandals today uh, of hundreds and even thousands of children being abused by priests. I think in a recent court case there in Pennsylvania, I think it was about a thousand victims of, of sexual abuse by priests over a 15 or 16 year, year period. It's horrifying. It's horrible. And again, as the news reports are saying, even some high officials in this church are, are being implicated in this scandal of the church that in, is involved in this. It's interesting that the Pope, even in the last couple of days, has come out and has uh, been uh, quoted as saying, the accuser is attacking us. The accuser is attacking us. Now, you know, God says... You who bear the vessels of the Lord, be clean. And he, he's very clear about that and very emphatic about that. Um, this, is, this is a system which is unclean. And we must not in, in any way, shape, or form uh, be following that or even be following the, the spirit of that system. Obedience to God's laws matter. It matters to God. It matters in our personal life. Uh, the Messiah was prophesied to, in Isaiah 42, verse 21, to exalt the law and make it honorable. God is not against law. Christ is not against the law. It matters to Him. And it's a mark of this system we're talking about that the law of God is thrown out the window, and at least in terms of how they perceive it. First uh, Timothy chapter four and verse one. Let's turn over to a, a passage here in First Timothy chapter four and verse one. Paul again is writing here, and Paul said, "Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits." And doctrines of demons. So there are demonic doctrines. And this is a demonic system that we're talking about. So what are some of their do doctrines that are demonic? Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry. And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting that even one of the doctrines of demons is that, that uh, when God says 
marriage is good. It's something that is natural. It's something that He designed. It's something that He he ordained. It's something that is even a part of Him reproducing Himself and and bringing children into into positive and 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 nurturing families. Then this system says no. Uh, the priests should not marry. It's in direct contradiction of what God says when when God says marriage is a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing and a natural thing and what young men and young women desire and what they want. And it just is one example of how this system, you know, even in something like this, goes against what God says. And isn't it the truth? In human nature, uh, all too often when we are not guided by God's Spirit. If God says left, we want to go right. If He says go right, we want to go left. So whatever He says, humanly we we say I I just want to do the opposite. Whatever it is, we must have a different way of thinking. Again, the point is this system is one. This woman is one who will be a religious system that that absolutely goes in contrary to God's law. William Manchester continues in the book, A World Lit Only by Fire. He says, Statues of Horus, the Egyptian sky god, and Isis, the goddess of royalty, were rechristened Jesus and Mary. They were just, they were the same statues. They were just called Jesus and Mary instead of the Egyptian gods. Craftsmen turned out other images and pictures to meet the demands of Christians who kissed them prostrated themselves before them and adorned them with flowers. So there were people who were so hung up on idolatry that there was this outcry for images and what could the church do but satisfy the outcry of, of the masses? And that's, of course, what this, this dominant, uh, visible church did. Nothing like what the Bible says. Nothing like what God says. He said when... When there are observances by the nations around you, stay away from them. Don't do them. Break down their images. Don't be a part of that. And um, and of course, that's that's uh, you know that's still valid today. That we don't want any part of any type of idolatry, and we want to give our lives totally to God and His laws and His commandments. And it clarifies so much when we just understand that God's laws don't change. God's commandments don't change. So this system will be powerful, will be politically influential. It will be one that tries to do away with God's laws. Number three, this is a system which will have lying wonders and deceitful signs. Lying wonders and deceitful signs. Um, Let's go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 real quickly here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul said, uh, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, in other words, Christ's return, will not come unless the fallen away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. There's this individual who is, who is called the man of sin. That's how he's labeled. Uh, that's his name in that sense. That's describing him. 
the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then later down in the verses, it, it describes him as the lawless one. The lawless one. Uh, and he is one who's coming according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So, we already read uh, and we were talking about in the second point, this system will be contrary to God's laws. Now we're reading again that this is a man of sin, lawless one. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because, verse 10, they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie. So there's going to be this man of sin, a lawless one, who is going to bring strong delusion. Uh, Revelation chapter 13. Let's go back to Revelation now. Revelation chapter 13. And uh, this now describes, this chapter is talking about, uh, describing the same system, but just from a different angle. Um, it's describing this system, religious system, as another beast, as a second beast, in contrast to the first beast, which is the political entity. Uh, verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Two horns like a lamb. Symbolic? Is this someone or something that is that is having the face or having the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, but speaking like a dragon, clearly what's coming out of his mouth and what he's teaching and what he's professing is not from God. This is from the dragon. This is from Satan the devil. So this is clearly a deceitful system that, as we're going to see, is a religious system, a church. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So again, there's going to come on the scene a great leader of a church who's going to do powerful miracles. Now, these don't appear to be sleight of hand. They don't appear to be done by mirrors. They don't appear to be fakes. They appear to be real. That he is going to have limited power. Certainly influenced by Satan the devil, who has limited power. He does he, Satan can't overthrow God, but he has certain power. So he's going to give certain power to this individual who is going to be performing actual miracles. And you stop and think about it for a moment. Imagine that the TV stations, the TV cameras. Imagine the people with their cam with their uh, you know FaceTime, Facebook Live on. You don't even need the TV stations to be there anymore. 
there will be a lot of people who will be very excited about this. And the, the buzz and the stir all over the world will be amazing. This guy's performing miracles. He's calling fire down from heaven. Nobody can do that unless they have power. Can you, can you imagine the wave of, 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 um, of pressure it will be even among God's people to think, wow, this guy is doing signs and wonders. And maybe some of the signs and wonders are even done for good, you know, to some limited extent. Whatever. We don't know. But, but Christ said it's going to be so powerful and so deceitful, we have to be wary. Can you imagine that? But he also said, don't be deceived. This is not a man of God. And hold your place there because I do want to go back to a, a chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 13 because this is really important. Deuteronomy 13 and verse, verse 1. I think there's a, a passage here which is crucial for us to understand in light of these events coming on and, and in light of the prophecies of a deception coming from this this individual. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Notice, God is not surprised or shocked, you know, if a false prophet is able to do limited signs. Why? Because they can have demonic help. If the sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You notice the words of that individual are, let us... Go after other gods. Let us serve other gods. And, and God was saying through Moses, look, even if they, the sign comes to pass, if, if what they say and what they teach doesn't match up with my commandments, don't follow them. For I am testing you. I am testing you. You know, again, back in uh, Worldwide and the days when uh, when things were starting to get very crazy and confusing. I remember having a conversation with a, a, class, a classmate of mine. And I was expressing some of my frustration with, with, with what was happening. And, and how, you know, how could this be? How could we, how, you know, about God's laws and about what the church has taught for so many years and what the Bible says. And, and I remember one of my friends saying, yeah, but... God would never allow that to happen. God would never allow uh, the leadership of the church to be taken over in this way and to, to, to teach and to, to, to throw a curveball at us. No? I mean, look at it right there. God says sometimes someone will come and that doesn't mean that we should look for loose bricks. That doesn't mean that we should be super picky of God's servants. But again, according to the law and testimony, if they don't speak according to these words and God's commandments, there's no light in them. And sometimes he allows us to be tested. 
so that our loyalty can be tried and tested. He says, he's testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. So, God is going to allow our generation to be tested like we've never been tested before. When this system raises its ugly head and we're going to be tried, we're going to be tested to to know if we really love God and really are going to obey Him and submit to Him above all else. And it doesn't matter if the signs come to pass. That's the point. Because this system will have limited, limited power to do deceitful signs. That's number three. It'll be politically influential. Uh, It will be contrary to God's laws and it will be doing deceitful signs. Number four, number four, this system, the harlot woman, is a system which will have harlot daughters. This system is one that will have harlot daughters. Let's go back to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 And verse 5, we'll pick up where we were reading before, where we stopped. After it talks about this woman being arrayed in purple and scarlet, being very rich and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of fornication, you know, uh, uh, corrupting uh, God's laws and corrupting God's ways, spiritual harlotry. Then notice verse 5, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Battle on the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So clearly this church had, again, through compromise, absorbed pagan rites, ancient pagan rites. That's what's talking about. Mystery, Battle on the Great, just a resurgence of the ancient mystery system, Babylonian mystery religion. But not only that, What is one of the great legacies of this woman, of this church? Simply put, this church is not only a woman, but she is a mother. This church is not only a woman, but she is a mother. There are other churches that have come out of her. They may not look exactly like her. They may have a different veneer, a different finish, a different facade, a different name. But when you break it down, the DNA is exactly the same. And that's the point. Now, why is that important to us? Let's go back to Revelation 13. Let's unwrap this a bit and see something here in Revelation 13, picking up, talking about this this religious system again. In Revelation 13, that is going to rear its head Uh, just before Christ's return. And notice one of the things that's going to happen. uh, Verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So what is that mark? We understand all you have to do is go on the internet and you can find a whole bunch of different uh, explanations of the mark of the beast. You know, whether it's some sort of implant or whether it's some sort of uh, 
number that we're given, whether, you know, your social security number or whatever. There are all kinds of crazy ideas. But most likely, as we have learned for many years and taught uh, and been taught in the church, it is referring to the mark of the beast, referring to people swearing allegiance to doctrines that are in contradiction to God's laws. The mark of the beast is a mark of not obeying God's laws. And it's talking about their hand and their head. What they do with their hand and what they believe and profess in their head. Now, even more specifically, this is probably talking about Sunday worship as opposed to keeping the seventh day Sabbath because, you know, that again, that is the, the one commandment that a lot of people can't take. They, they will keep nine of them, but they cannot stand that fourth commandment. And again, the, the keeping of the Sabbath has to do with what we do with our hand. We work on that day. And also it has to do with what we think and profess and believe in our, in our mind and in our heart. So, probably the mark of the beast is having to do with uh, Sunday worship as opposed to keeping the seven-day Sabbath. So, let's stop and think for a moment. It's not only the rich and powerful and influential church in the city of Rome that keeps Sunday as a day of worship, right? There are a lot of other churches that identify themselves not as Catholic at all, but keep Sunday all over the world. Why do they do it? Sunday was never observed by Jesus Christ or the apostles. The uh, the Apostle Paul never taught his brethren to keep Sunday. And we can show that so clearly, so easily. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 44, talks about how when, when Paul came out of the synagogue and was talking to the Jews, and then he... The, the Gentiles begged him to, to, to come back the next Sabbath and, and teach them. What a great opportunity. He, he could have said, look, you guys, you don't have to come wait a whole week. Let's, we're going to have Sunday morning services right here tomorrow morning. You come back to the, tomorrow, I'll be here. He didn't say that. Why? Because he didn't keep Sunday. And, the, and even the Gentiles were not keeping Sunday when as they came into the truth. They were keeping uh, the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath. You know, <clears throat> I think I this may have been told before, but I had a, what an interesting conversation with a, a, a gentleman who called uh, several months ago. Uh, some of us, when Mr. Amon is taking the phone calls um, in PCD, and when, uh, when he's uh, on another line, some of us will take some of the calls that, that are uh, forwarded. And there was a gentleman who called up and he was sort of taking us to task for uh, some of the things that we, we believe and taught and that he had seen in the, in the writings, in the articles. And uh, he was fairly uh, assertive in, in his uh, demeanor. And we were talking a while and he, he just was not in agreement with what we uh, taught. And uh, so we, we taught a while and, and or we talked for a while and uh, I wasn't sure how, how profitable this would be because he was pretty much set in his ways. And then, but as we talked, I said, okay, let, let's talk about what we have in agreement. You know, we, we both agree that, that Christ died for our sins. We are sinners. We, we need forgiveness. Okay, we both need, agree that 
that we cannot keep the law without God's Spirit. Without is Christ keeping it in us? Okay, he agreed with that. Okay, uh, you know we both believe that we we can't murder our grandmother, right? Uh, yeah, okay, we agree with that. So we we went through all of the different commandments that we agreed on, and I said finally, you know, so really. It's only the Sabbath that we don't agree on, right? He said, well, yeah, yeah, that seems to be. And so I said, look, can we just look at one passage? And I said, can you turn to Acts 13, verse 42? And we read it together. And after we read that, he there was a long pause, and he says, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I said, okay, <laughs> that's amazing. I didn't expect it. Uh, because so many times it's not about getting to the truth. It, it's about defending your position. But this man was amazing because when he saw it in black and white, he, he, he didn't see it before, but once he saw it in black and white, he said, uh, you're right. So just, just an amazing phone call, and I'm so glad that, uh, that I didn't cut it short be, uh, before we came to that ending. That was pretty exciting. Um, Who changed the Sabbath? Who changed the Sabbath? Uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 23 through 25, talks about a little horn who would displace three horns. It's talking about the, the Pope who, in league with Justinian, was able to displace three uh, barbarian tribes that had been ruling over Rome. And then shall intend to change times and law. This is a religious system that was prophesied to come and was against God's laws. And for, in particular, it would change some of the times that, that God's way taught. They having the audacity to change the day of worship that God ordained. The point is, the daughters have gone right along. That's the point. The daughters of Babylon have gone right along. Dr. Meredith explains this in his booklet, Which Day is the Christian Sabbath? Page 35. He says the Catholic Church um, Oh, this is this is quoting Let's see here. Oh, no. This is Dr. Meredith. The Catholic Church will gladly mention that it changed the day. For it shows that the Protestants are not relying on the Bible as their only rule of faith, as they claim but are instead acknowledging the authority of the Roman church to change God's law. The Catholic mirror explains it, and this is a quote from 1893. Quote, The Protestant world at its birth found the Christian Sabbath or Sunday too strongly entrenched to run counter to its existence. Now again, this is a Catholic source writing, but just think this through. It was therefore placed under the necessity of acquiescing in the arrangement, thus implying the church's right to change the day for over 300 years. The Christian Sabbath, Sunday, is therefore to this day the acknowledged offspring of the Catholic Church without a word of protest from the Protestant world. What a quote. Dr. Meredith says, incredible, yes, of course the Catholic had no right to change the day. Nevertheless, that is just what they did. And the Protestant churches have followed suit. Meanwhile, the true church has continued in keeping the true Sabbath just as it did 
in apostolic times. So, as we're thinking about marks of this woman, she has harlot daughters, untold millions of professing Christians think they are following the Bible. And they may have respect for the Bible and they may be following parts of the Bible. And many are sincere. Many are our neighbors and friends and relative, relatives. And maybe many profess love of Christ. And many to some degree do love Christ. They, they just don't know the whole truth yet. And they, maybe they try to live good lives. But we should never be confused that good people can be dead wrong on, on doctrine and on beliefs. I think our young people need to really understand this. That if you're growing up at, in the church at this time, you are in the true church of God. And you have an opportunity to learn the truth first. To not be confused by the, the lies and the deceptions of this false church. And not have to wade through that. Don't take it for granted. You know, Satan doesn't arrive in, in a, a pitchfork and a tail and a suit, and a red suit. He comes in a counterfeit. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that's, again, one thing that in, our, in the apostasy years ago, I think one thing that the, those who overthrew uh, God's way and, and what the church had been following for many years, they, they sort of preyed on the assumption that some fell into that, you know, everybody in the church is good and everybody out in the world is, is evil and bad and decadent and, you know, you don't want any, you don't want to touch them. You don't want to be around them. And, you know, we have to understand that that there are good people out in the world. And I think a lot of young people got tripped up by that argument, thinking, wow, you're right, you know, my neighbors are actually nice people. You know, and they don't keep the Sabbath, but they're nicer than I am. So, you know, maybe they're better Christians than I am. And that, that line of thinking really got a lot of people un, uh, confused. We have to understand, not everybody who doesn't understand the whole truth is mean and nasty. We have some wonderful neighbors. And we should, we should help our neighbors as we have opportunity. You know, right now in this storm, we, we, we should, as opportunity, if our neighbors need help, we, we should be willing to help. We should pitch in with those who, who are around us and, and uh, we can help. Or our unconverted relatives. You know, we, they're not all mean and nasty. But that is different than being true Christians. And we need to understand that. Heresy is heresy, no matter how nice the people are who espouse it. You know, Mr. Weston has brought this out in his recent article in the uh, September-October 2018 LCN article, Master of Misdirection. Uh, one, of the, one of the headings is, Were We Ever a Christian Nation? This is talk, referring to America, the United States. Uh, he explains that our friends and our neighbors are worshiping a false Christ. And while they believe certain parts of the Bible, and while they may be good people, and why, why that's good, you know, to the degree of whatever they follow in the Bible, that's good. 
but the whole basic concepts of mainstream Protestantism came from a false, counterfeit Christianity. And, and as much as we care for our unconverted relatives and our neighbors, we must never get confused about that. <clears throat> because Sunday worship came straight out of this system we're talking about. And the Protestants are a part of that system. They have the marks of that system. Sunday worship is one of them. What's another mark? And these are sort of subheads of, of this point. I think that's point four. Another mark that the daughters will have from the mother is the acceptance of the Trinity doctrine. You know, the Trinity can be, in a lot of our minds, something that is just technical and it's just theoretical and it's just what theologians write about and that sort of thing. Matter of semantics. Uh, we don't feel that way. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean that. But it can come across like, well, it's just a technical issue. But when you start talking in the Protestant world about who is a real Christian, when, when you really get down to brass tacks, for those who understand doctrine, if you don't believe the Trinity, they do not consider you a real Christian. It's a big deal to, to the Protestant world. And the, the leaders who took the church into apostasy back in the late 80s and early 90s, they knew that. They knew that the Worldwide Church of God would never really be accepted in the, in the community of mainstream uh, Protestantism, Christianity, if Worldwide did not espouse the Trinity doctrine. That's why they changed it. That's why they pushed it. That's why they pushed it forward. <clears throat> and yet, where did it come from? Again, the same source as Sunday worship. Uh, going back to Dr. Meredith's uh, booklet and the pamphlet Faith of Our Fathers, by, uh, written by James Gar Cardinal Gibbons back in 1876, he wrote this. This is James Cardinal Gibbons, quoting, The Catholic Church... Now, this is a Catholic saying this, so don't get me wrong. It's not me saying this, us saying this. He says this. The Catholic Church correctly teaches that our Lord and His Apostles inculcated certain important duties of religion which are not recorded by the inspired writers. Now, think about this for a moment when we talk about what the Bible says and what, how we respect the Bible and uphold the Bible as God's Word. Uh, he says, this is the, the, the Cardinal speaking, For instance, most Christians pray to the Holy Ghost. A practice which is nowhere found in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? But he says, We must therefore conclude that the Scriptures alone cannot be a sufficient guide and rule of faith because they cannot at any time be within the reach of every inquirer because they are not of themselves clear and intelligible even in matters of the highest importance and because they do not contain all the truths necessary for salvation. Now stop for a minute and think about that. First of all, he's saying the Bible is not the source of truth. You can't understand it. And frankly, not everything required for salvation is there. But the other point he makes is that most Christians pray to the Holy Ghost, which is not found in the Bible. Therefore, we don't trust the Bible. You see the reasoning it's upside down. But he's admitting that that practice is nowhere found in the Bible. So where did it come from? Well, 
you know, you just do a little bit of research and you find the Trinity goes way, way beyond uh, the time of Christ. It was a part of ancient uh, pagan systems and the Catholic Church absorbed it just like they did a lot of things. But again, who just went along? The Protestant churches just went along because they didn't, they wanted followers. And they didn't want to rock the boat in a time when they were really locked in a political maneuver with the Catholic Church, the German princes. As Dr. Meredith has explained in the, in the articles about the Protestant Reformation, it was a, it was a political maneuver to, to upend the power of the papacy. What's another one? Number three uh, in these subheads of correlations between the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches is the doctrine of the immortal soul, of heaven and hell, going to heaven, going to hell. But try to talk a good Baptist out of ever-burning hellfire and, and see how far you can get. You don't get very far. Where did that come from? And what's the point? Well, the point is, when it comes down to what they really believe in doctrine, many of the Protestants are, are really not that far removed from the Catholic Church. You know, other than the authority of the papacy and, and a few uh, minor things, which frankly have been erased in our recent years, recent history. Um, some of you remember back a few years ago, an evangelical minister, Tony Palmer, gave an address to a group of, of, uh, of leaders in a Protestant church. And he referred to a movement of the Roman Catholic Church bringing back the daughters into the fold and he referred to a document signed in 1999 by the Catholics and the Lutherans. Uh, a new, it's called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification by the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church. So this is almost 20 years ago already. But this is the Joint Declaration. In faith, we together hold the conviction that justification is the work of the triune God. Catholic, Lutheran, they both signed this document. The Father sent His Son into the world to save sinners. The foundation and the presupposition of justification is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. Justification thus means that Christ Himself is our righteousness, in which we share through the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together we confess, by grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renew our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Now, there's just a lot of words there, you know. It sounds all good, but the point being is that they found, the Catholic Church found a way to massage the wording so that the Lutherans would agree to it. And they signed it. And the statement was met with applause and then Tony Palmer said, the protest is over. So why the Protestant church? Good question. What is left for the daughters of Babylon, the daughters of the mother church, to come back? We are truly living in historic times. The step for the daughters to come back to the mother is, is not that far. I remember back a few years ago uh, in the early 90s when I was visiting a relative of mine and uh, in my hometown, a great aunt. And a friend of hers had died 
and they had a funeral while I was there. So I attended the funeral with her, and we, we sat in the back. Uh, the service was Catholic. The my aunt was a Lutheran, so we didn't take part in the in the in the service. But at the end of of course we didn't take part in the service. But at the end of the service, the Catholic priest said, "Now we'll have the mass." And we invite all our Lutheran friends to come join us. We wouldn't and couldn't have done this a few years ago. Now, you know, about 400, 500 years ago, Protestants and Catholics were slitting each other's throats to the tune of millions were dying in the Thirty Years' War. We are truly living in historic times. And there's not much space, not much of a step for the daughters to go back to the mother. That's the point. So, the fourth point is that the, in the major points here, that the harlot, the great harlot has uh, harlot daughters. So, what are the four we've talked about so far? She'll be a powerful, influential political uh, uh, influence. Number two, she will be in contradiction to God's laws. Number three, she will have signs, lying wonders. And number four, she will have harlot daughters. Number five, number five, this system will persecute the saints. This system will persecute the saints. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. Let's read here. I'll just read it. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. There is persecution. There has been persecution in the past. And there will be persecution again in the future. We, we have to be courageous. We have to be strong. We'll need protection. We can't depend on our own selves. We have to have God's protection. Uh, but it is also interesting that this system, yes, has persecuted the saints, but has persecuted and put to death a lot of others as well. Millions and millions of people have died because of the ravages of this system. Satan is an indiscriminate killer. You know, he will, he will try to destroy anyone that he can. That's his goal. Uh, there's even the story of, of one of, uh, of, a king during the Middle Ages, this is brought out in the book, uh, World Lit Only by Fire, a king that has, had displeased one of the popes, and then as penance, he apologized, but as penance, he was required to walk with chains on his feet all the way to Jerusalem and all the way back, and then required to do it again. I mean, this is a cruel system. This man walked with chains, walked step by step as a a way of penance. Thousands of miles. And if I remember the story, um, he died not long afterward because of just the... the, His health was absolutely broken. This system is a cruel system that will, will persecute anyone that stands in its way. Dr. Meredith writes in Who or What is the Antichrist? He says, historically, do we read about a great church that did persecute millions of people during the Middle Ages? Did a church exist 
In his well-documented book, A Woman Rides the Beast, author Dave Hunt describes what the woman did for hundreds of years during the Middle Ages. Quote, Thus, Roman Catholicism became, quote, the greatest, the most persecuting faith the world has ever seen, commanding the throne to impose the Christian Catholic religion on all its subjects. Innocent III, what a name, Innocent III murdered far more Christians in one afternoon than any Roman emperor did in his entire reign. You think about that for a moment. We think about the Romans being a, a cruel taskmaster, and yet nothing like this system. Will Durant writes candidly, compared with the persecution of heresy in Europe from 1227 to 1492, the persecution of Christians by Romans in the first three centuries after Christ was a mild and humane procedure, making every allowance required by a historian and permitted to a Christian, we must rank the Inquisition, along with the wars and persecutions of our time, as among the darkest blots on the record of mankind, revealing a ferocity unknown in any beast. So when John, this is Dr. Meredith writing, so when John saw this woman or apostate church drunk with the blood of the saints, he was certainly not exaggerating. So, this system is going to be very, very harsh and cruel on a lot of people. And we have to be prepared. But there also is some very encouraging things about the woman that is God's true church and is going to marry Christ. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Because we aren't left to fear. We aren't left to wonder. God wants us to trust Him. God wants us to be faithful to Him. And yes, there will be persecution. And yes, some of us may have to give our lives for this way of life. But God shows that by and large His faithful and zealous church will be protected from the face of this serpent. Revelation 12 and verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So we understand this, not to be the rapture, not to be, you know, uh, people being, being, being lifted off into heaven somewhere. But as Dr. Meredith explained so many times, uh, heaven is not described as a wilderness. This is somewhere on earth. And three, uh, three and a half years comes out to a time, that's one year, times... That's two years and half a time, three and a half years, the time of the, of the tribulation, uh, all, all the way including the day of the Lord. But God's people, God's zealous people and faithful people, those who are really on fire and really close to Him, really walking this way, not just talking the talk, but really walking the walk, will be protected. Verse, eight, verse 15, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood, a flood being symbolic of, of men, of an army. 
after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. Dramatic miracle which protects the church at this time. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is not talking about the Jews. This is talking about Christian, true Christians because they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Christ. But notice, not only commandment keeping is important and not only believing in Christ is important, but going all out being close to God, changing, growing, being willing to be corrected, being willing to be right in the center of God's will, not somewhere off on the periphery, not somewhere sort of compromising with His way of life. God will protect His people who are zealous and faithful. Are we zealous, brethren? Because that's the warning for today, not to... For, for, for that God has given us for our time. Not to scare us out of our boots, but, but to understand this is coming and being ready and be warned. Just like the, with the, the ty- super typhoon in the Philippines and the hurricane coming off the Atlantic. You know, if, if, if a week ago, the, the state officials, government officials would say, well, we don't want to scare anybody. We don't want to say anything about this hurricane coming. We're not going to we're not going to talk. That'll be scary. Well, no, we want them to tell us what's coming so we can prepare, so we can make sure we have uh, the things we need during uh, a difficult time. The same way God is telling us not to scare us, but to understand what's coming and to know how we can escape it. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we really on fire? Are we really focused on what's important? Are we really putting first things first? Now, none of us does it perfectly. Nobody does. We all have to overcome. But overcoming in itself is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And if we don't have enough zeal, if we sense that, you know, I'm really not doing what I know I need to be doing in my life, we need to cry out to God for help. He's not expecting us to do it on our own. We need to ask Him for help. Ask Him for the encouragement. Ask Him for the strength. Ask Him for more of His Spirit. Ask Him to help us use His Spirit. Ask Him to help us to draw him to draw us close to Him. And even to be asking and, and to teach us what we need to learn these holy days that are coming up. The Day of Atonement in a few days. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. A tremendous time to think and meditate and absorb and, and get all the craziness of this world sort of on the shelf and put that on the shelf and not worry about how it's getting crazier every day. And to really soak up what God has for us in this time and in, in the message about the future and where our focus should be and what we should be doing right now to prepare. A tremendous opportunity we have in the next uh, week and a half, two weeks to do that. So let's look at one, uh, one thing here as we get closer to finishing here. Uh, in Revelation chapter 17. What will happen to this harlot woman? 
What's the end? What's the end game? Well, God reveals the end from the beginning. And he says in verse 14, in Revelation 17, after we read of the ten kings giving their power and authority to the beast, these will make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. That's the end of the story. That's how it ends. It's not the end of the story yet. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So if we understand it, we are even given an opportunity to be a part of the system, be a part of God's system, God's way of life, God's church, and be a part of those who are resurrected and changed and have a, a part to play to, to put this system to its end forever. What a tremendous opportunity that when we really understand how corrupt and how abominable and how much it has hurt people through the centuries, that will be an honor to be a part of God's team that is putting this to an end. Notice in, um, in verse, uh, verse 15, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. You notice how these turn on each other at the very end. Make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Notice and turn over to Revelation 19 and verse 19. It says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. How does it end? God tells us, how it ends. These two leaders are going to be destroyed and they never will impact humanity again. And this system will never be allowed to impact humanity again. Let's turn over to uh, Revelation 1 and then we'll close here. God will restore the true worship. will will allow it to be a flourish and spread all over the earth. We're going to be talking about that in the Feast of Tabernacles. And we can have a part of that. But we have to overcome and we have to not be a part of this system in any shape or form. Either in an official form, you know, actually as a, a member of it or even in spirit. In taking on different aspects and attitudes of the, the different attributes we've been talking about. We need to be on God's team. When all of this comes down, we need to be on God's team and firmly in his camp. That's the bottom line. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Going back to the beginning of the book. Why was the book written? We read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. It's for our good so we understand and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. 
you know, it's accurate, it's true, it's good. We can take it to the bank. We can depend on it. We can stake our lives on it. Verse 3, blessed, blessed, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. It's a blessing to be able to read this book and understand what's happening and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Brethren, there is a tremendous amount of truth as we look at these scriptures that we have read about the harlot woman who is going to rear her head one more time, but God is going to win. Mr. Armstrong used to say that in the end. He says, I've read the end of the book, and in the end, we win. What a tremendous blessing it is to be a part of the true church, that pure woman who is faithfully and zealously following Christ all the way. Let's make sure we are a part of that woman. As he says, my people, oh my people, come out of Babylon.